May I speak in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do please sit down. And so today we continue our trip through the Epiphany season and we get to the well-known story of the wedding at Cana. Now I have a confession. Every time I hear the story of the wedding of Cana, I think of Marks and Spencers. And I shall tell you why, okay? Do you remember the adverts that used to be on the television that played the Fleetwood Mac song? John tells me it was Albatross. I don't know. Anyway, and it said something like on the voiceover, this is not just any Belgian chocolate. This is Marks and Spencer's Belgian chocolate. It's my next career after this, I might add, voiceover. But I always think that for the wedding at Cana, it would sound something like, this is not just any wine. This is Jesus' wine. Anyway, a lot of sermons do focus on the quality of the beverage that came out of those jars, like the servant says, like the steward. And others prefer to to, um, concentrate on the quantity of the wine. And I looked on the internet, and there's all sorts of bits of maths available about how many gallons there may or may not have been. But needless to say, it was a lot. Okay, Even more than we need for communion for a whole entire year, I'm sure. And then some people get really confused about the epiphany season because it seems that we jump around a lot. We jump from the kings at the manger to the wedding at Cana via the baptism of Christ in just three Sundays. And then in another couple of weeks, we're back at the presentation to the temple when Jesus is eight days old. But the thing that joins them all together through the whole season is that theme of revelation that I'm sure, I haven't been here last week, but whoever preached, I'm sure, mentioned that epiphany is about revelation. Because each one, each event, reveals something of who Jesus is at different times and in different places and for different people, depending on the passage. And we know that that's what today's reading is about, because it actually tells us in verse 11 how helpful. Jesus did this, it says, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory. And so today's reading is about excellence, it is about abundance, and it is about glory revealed, which does tell us a lot about Jesus and an awful lot about God. Quantity, quality, glory revealed are all good themes, but I don't want to do that. I want to start with it somewhere else today. I want to look at how the drama plays out as we watch the scene. So, a recap. This is what has happened. Mary gets invited to a wedding. Jesus and the disciples get invited as well. During the feast, they run out of wine. Mary asks Jesus to do something about it. Jesus says, it's not my problem, but gets involved anyway. Tells the servants to fill the jars with water. They draw some out. They take it to the steward. The steward tastes it, says it's brilliant, and at the same time sort of accuses the bridegroom of bad party planning etiquette and putting wine in the wrong order. And that's what happens. 
Now, one of the things that drama teachers ask their students to think about is what action is happening in a scene. And there is this fabulous exercise that they do, and both my children have done it, and it's hilarious, um, where they get them on stage at the front and they split the stage in two. And at one stage, they're sat round a table in a restaurant, that'd be a one corner. At the other side, they're the people in the kitchen. And going between the two sides of the stage is one person, the waiter. And both sides of the stage have to improvise what's going on. They improvise their conversations, they improvise their cooking, but they are only allowed to do it when the waiter is present. He has to go back and forth through the invisible kitchen door. And when the waiter is not there, they freeze. It's called, unsurprisingly, freeze frame. But what it gets the students to do is think about what's actually happening, to really pay attention to what's going on around them. And I think it's worth looking at our passage today in a similar way and asking ourselves who knew what, who saw what was going on, who was aware of what was happening with the wine and the water miracle, and perhaps who wasn't and I think, for what it's worth, you should do this with pretty much any passage of scripture. So when you're reading at home, week by week, do it. Don't be afraid to play with it and look at it. Maybe write it down on a piece of paper if you want to. Draw it out. It really helps us to get below the surface of the words on the page, particularly when we come to a story that we think we know just off the top of our heads. So let's start. Who did not know what was going on? Well, John is very helpful, and he tells us explicitly that the steward did not know where the wine came from. And if we just read the text, there's nothing there to say that he ever found out. And there's nothing to suggest that the wider guests, perhaps the ones who were dancing in the corner or the ones who were sat at the other end, too busy partying and drinking all the wine, maybe they weren't paying any attention at all. And the bridegroom himself actually seems to be fairly ignorant that this miracle has taken place under his very nose. It's not even certain that he knew they were running out of wine in the first place. Poor bridegroom. I said just now that the steward was perhaps criticising his party skills. Can you imagine the social embarrassment of running out of wine at your very own wedding? What does that say about him? Maybe a lack of hospitality, a lack of generosity, a lack of poor planning and provision, and it is not an auspicious start to your marriage when you are trying to suggest to wife and family that you will be able to provide for her. And for what it's worth, when it comes to those guests who perhaps didn't know, I think that that's a good thing. Because effectively, them knowing would have exposed the shame of the bridegroom. And Jesus was not often about exposing to people to shame, to making them look bad. So let's turn to who did know. Well, Jesus, obviously, the one doing the miracle. Presumably Mary. And she was actually expecting him to step in and do something. I wonder what she'd seen in the past that made her think that this is something that Jesus could sort out. 
I wonder who else knew what was happening. Well, the servants who drew the water from the jars, we know that they did. And I'm going to presume the disciples, disciples who were sat at the table with Jesus. But I wonder if any of that surprises you. I wonder if any of that is not how you thought about it before. And as I thought about it this week, I'll tell you what surprised me. And that was actually what I came to see as perhaps a really small number of people who actually knew about this miracle. We're not given a number for the servants, but I don't imagine that there were very many. And although we hear the word disciple and we think 12, because we have all gone to Sunday school like good people, um, there is nothing at the start of John's Gospel that, it, that says that Jesus has anywhere near 12 disciples by the time we get to the wedding at Cana. We've only had four named ones, Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, and possibly one other, unless they double up. And so we're talking about small numbers who witness this miracle. And I think whenever we look at a miracle, it's worth asking who it is for. Well, the gospel writers have written it down retrospectively for our benefit and for the, the generations that have come both before and afterwards. But the miracle itself is always for someone in the text. Think of the epiphany stories we've had so far. The arrival of the Magi following a miraculous star. Well, that was a revelation for King Herod, perhaps a warning, actually, that he was not king, ultimately, after all. But I also think for Joseph, after all his doubts and all his dreams, imagine the confirmation that he had done the right thing when those three magi arrived with the gifts. And then when we come to the baptism of Jesus, well, depending on which gospel version you read, it's not entirely clear who sees the heavens open and who sees the dove come down and who hears the voice that says, this is my son. And depending on which version you're reading, you could draw a different conclusion about who the voice is for. But as we turn to the wedding at Cana, we are told who this miracle is for. It's at the end of that verse 11. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This was for those few disciples, for the small group of people that were gathered about him. The miracle itself, not the point, but its purpose and its outcome were that they believed didn't need to be seen by the others, not at that time. Now, we often have the idea that miracles need to be big and showy and are seen by everyone. But after thinking like this of the wedding at Cana, I wonder how many miracles happen and we don't even notice. And the person who benefits from the miracle doesn't necessarily know that it is one. 
Look at this one in Cana. The bridegroom was the one who benefited. He had all his social points saved in front of his friends and family. He was the one whose party wasn't ruined. And yet, he remains ignorant. But the lives of the disciples were changed. The disciples' lives were changed by witnessing the miracle. And what else is a miracle for if it is not to change lives? And so, by my usual circuitous route, we get to the point of what it is I want to say today. Our call to action, our point to take home and ponder. Ask yourselves, where in people's lives do you see God at work revealing God's self? Where, as you encounter the people around you, do you see God being revealed? It doesn't matter if the person doesn't recognise it as a miracle in their life. In fact, as we move more and more amongst people who are not people of faith, actually they don't name things as miracles. But maybe, maybe the miracle is for you for you to notice and for your life to be changed by the spotting of it. And sometimes it is right for us to name that to somebody, but not always. Use your discretion. Use it wisely. But it's okay sometimes to go away in awe and in wonder and have your life and your relationship with God changed by what you have seen. And as we are going about the world, expecting miracles to happen in everyday life, think of the wedding at Cana, because they are not always dramatic. At the heart of this story, Jesus takes plain old water, ordinary, everyday stuff. And it is in the ordinary and the everyday that we need to look for God's revealing of God's self. And so as you go out into the world this week, keep your eyes open in the midst of the ordinary for just those glimmers of miracles that might just be God talking to you and trying to change your life. Amen.